This is Will Baker, president of the Chesapeake Bay Foundation. Our bi-weekly podcast, Turning the Tide, Saving the Chesapeake Bay. And today we're joined by Allison Colden, relatively new staff member at CBF. Welcome, Allison. Thank you for having me. How, how long have you been on staff? About a month and a half. A month and a half. You feel like it's old hat already, I'll bet. Absolutely. <laughs> and you know something I never do? Lauren Barnett, behind the scenes, doing all the technical work for these podcasts. Thank you, Lauren. You're welcome. I don't know if you heard that. She said you're welcome. Lauren is in our communications department, is editor of our magazine, among many other things. So Lauren makes these podcasts happen. We're grateful. So, Allison, you're here uh, full-time as the Maryland Fisheries Director in the headquarters office, but our Maryland office staff works in the same building as all of the headquarters staff. But you've got deep Virginia roots. That's right. Born and bred in Virginia and uh, did a lot of work on fisheries down there. So, back to my home roots. Born in Virginia Beach. Yep, that's right. Where CBF has a facility known as the Brock Center, the greenest building in the world. That's my line, and I'm sticking with it, as I've said in my podcast, in my actually in my TEDx talk. Um, left Virginia Beach, went to UVA, do I recall? That's right. Uh, studied biology at UVA, spent a lot of time out at Mountain Lake Biological Station, uh, sampling fish and getting to love getting down in the water with the critters. Yeah. So absolutely made an impression on me there. This has been your career. You went on to VIMS for your graduate work? That's right. Virginia Institute <clears throat> of Marine Science, part of the College of William & Mary out at Gloucester Point in Virginia. Spent a better part of six years there studying oyster reef restoration, particularly how to build a better reef how to get the most bang for your buck in terms of oyster reef design. So that was really what inspired me to work in the Bay, and I'm happy to continue working on oysters and oyster issues here with CBF. So, you know, we want to talk about oysters. I was going to ask you, what's your favorite critter in the Bay? And uh, I was hoping you'd say oysters. It sounds like that's the one you've really focused on. Well, you hit the nail on the head, so <laughs> you got me there. It's definitely got to be oysters. Okay, so... Let's start with the, the, the absolute basics. Um, first of all, tell us what species of oyster we have in the Chesapeake Bay and why that's good news still, and the basic biology of oysters and their ecological role in the Chesapeake. Just give us a little Oyster 101 to start. Sure thing, Oyster 101. So the oysters that we have in the Chesapeake Bay are a species called the Eastern Oyster. Their scientific name is Chrysostria virginica. They're actually found all along the eastern seaboard from Canada all the way down to Mexico. So it is one species that is found along all those different places along the east coast. Um, one of the things that's really interesting about this particular species of oyster is that they're known to be reef builders. So generation after generation, baby oysters settle on top of older oysters and over time, through growth and recruitment of new oysters on top of old oysters, over thousands of years, they build up these very large, cohesive reef structures. That literally come up to the surface of the water and even out of the water at low tide. 
That's in, right. In, in days of old. That's right. We have those accounts from John Smith and, and others later on that detail the huge oyster reefs that were navigational hazards to boats back in those days because they would, as you said, be these upthrusting structures which could at times reach the, the water's surface. So the concept of oysters being the coral reefs of the Chesapeake is um, not only true in scientific terms and their role, but literally in their physicality in the bay in the in in uh, colonial times. It's pretty spot on in terms of an analogy. Yeah, that's right. So continue, Oysters 101. Oysters 101. So as we mentioned, they build these large reefs, and these reefs are important not only because they build up high enough off the bottom to keep the oysters out of the sediment, but also because they provide nooks and crannies and all different types of habitats for other critters that like to live on and around and feed on the oyster reefs. Any any fisherman knows you know, one place to go out and look for fish is on the oyster rock, what, what a lot of fishermen call it. And those are old oyster reefs, and that's where the fish go. That's right. So oysters provide sort of the basis of the food chain there. So they're providing the habitat for the small fish, the worms, the small crabs, other animals that uh, larger fish that we like to fish um, would eat. So things like striped bass and, and other fish that people like to fish for are spending a lot of their time reproducing and eating on foraging on those oyster reefs. And talk a little bit about the thing that I think is so fascinating, what do oysters do in order to feed and what's the ecological value of that? I'll give it away, the filtering. <laughs> yeah, you hit the nail on the head there. So um, oysters are not only um, these amazing reef builders, but as you mentioned, they are prolific filter feeders. So what a filter feeder does is they take in water and pass it through these filters on their gills, which pulls out small pieces of phytoplankton, which is the food that they eat. It's very small, microscopic, single-celled plants um, in the water. And that's the food that the oysters will actually eat. And in so doing, they also pull out sediment that may be floating around in the water. So they are filtering out both the food that they need to eat, as well as sediment, which is something that can be a challenge in the ecosystem if there's too much of it. So they can filter up to 50 gallons of water per day for a single adult oyster. So you, when you put all of that together with hundreds of adult oysters on an oyster reef, you're looking at quite a bit of capacity in terms of filtration. And as one scientist years ago estimated whether it was accurate or not, it's a great story that the oysters in the bay, the population of oysters in the bay at one time could filter the entire volume every three or four days. That's an amazing uh, ecological benefit for the bay. Yes, absolutely. So um, this may be too simplistic, but what I often say is oysters take algae, which we have too much of in the bay. They're a result of too much fertilization from nitrogen and phosphorus. They take algae out of the water, create tasty oyster meat, and thereby really have a benefit in cleaning up the bay. So far, so good? Yeah. And in terms of the sediment, they're not utilizing the sediment into the oyster meat. A lot of people worry when they hear about that filtering that maybe there's some contamination or they shouldn't eat oysters because of that. They actually remove the sediment from the water column, compact it, 
and then uh, uh, excrete it, really, and place it on the bottom, which is much better than in the water column. I'm still doing okay? Yep. Very good. Um, and then the other question I get about oysters is people find it very hard to believe that the oysters from New England to Apalachicola, the Chesapeake Bay in between, and all the other spots up and down the East Coast are the same species because you get some very different tastes, but it's all the Eastern oyster. That's right. And a lot of it has to do with the environment in which it's grown. Um, so they have a certain um, taste and characteristic that reflects where they come from. And that's sort of one of the interesting things about eating oysters is you get to experience all those different um, environments, if you will, through the different oysters that you get all along the eastern seaboard. That's why people always say oysters are like fine wine. They take the taste of their region uh, and uh, incorporate them into the taste of the of the product. That's exactly right. Yeah. Uh, so let's move to where we are in the Chesapeake now. Um, back in uh, the late 1800s, uh, when New Yorkers had depleted oyster bars in New York and Long Island Sound, they came down to the Chesapeake and started harvesting oysters here. And the way I understand the story goes, they, they knocked those reefs down because it was a lot easier to drag their nets, their, their scrapes across something more horizontal than more vertical, and thus began uh, the over-harvesting of oysters in Chesapeake Bay. Well, there's a long uh, history to oysters in Chesapeake Bay, as you've pointed out, and a long history of um, what you might say are double and triple whammies that have sort of gotten us to where we are today. Um, one of those, of course, uh, was the flattening of those oyster beds. We just talked about how back, you know, several hundred years ago, these were very large structures with lots of relief off the bottom. And one thing that happens when you drag oyster dredges and other types of harvesting gear over that is it reduces the height of the reef off the bottom, which doesn't sound like it would make a big deal or be a big deal. Um, but over time, what happens is that makes those reefs more susceptible to sediment that comes in being silted over, which has a negative impact on those oysters. Not only can it smother the oysters that are living on the reef, it also prevents those other baby oysters from coming and being able to attach successfully. So not only can you kill the oysters that are existing, you're sort of reducing the ability of that reef to regenerate itself over time by making that quality of habitat, degrading that quality of habitat for the baby oysters. And before we get to talk about current conditions of oysters and some of the current issues, a few other things about the stresses on oysters. So being down on the bottom, mm -hmm. uh, in the mud, in areas where mud is, sediment is, is churned up, sometimes low dissolved oxygen, lots of stresses on the bottom as opposed to the big vertical reefs. Other stresses that impact oysters from dissolved oxygen to the two parasites, which are commonly called diseases. Tell us a little bit about those and, and other stresses that the oyster faces. Sure. So 
let's take low dissolved oxygen to start with. I think it's important to sort of look at this as an overall system because the reason that we have low dissolved oxygen in the bay has to do with both nutrient inputs and the loss of natural filters like oysters. So nutrients are what feed algae. Nitrogen, phosphorus, either coming off the land from fertilizers, coming out from sewage treatment plants, being dumped in from the air when you burn a fossil fuel, many sources. Right, exactly. And all of those sources feed into the bay, feed this nitrogen and phosphorus into the bay, and that is what feeds the algae. So when you feed the algae, they grow, just like any other plant would grow when you give it plant food. And it sometimes can overproduce. Because we have lower numbers of oysters, there's more algae there than can be eaten. And then the algae dies. When the algae dies, it falls down to the bottom. And in breaking down that algae, it uses up a lot of the oxygen. So the connection between um, increased nutrients, too much algae, not enough oysters, and low dissolved oxygen is all interconnected. And the low dissolved oxygen feeds back into impacting the oysters because obviously as animals that need oxygen to breathe, um, they're going to be negatively impacted by that as well. So, I mean, it's, it's what we hear about all the time when we often talk about climate change, these negative feedback loops. Whereas you have one thing that contributes to a problem and the problem contributes to more of the problem and it gets accelerated almost like a vicious cycle. That's right, yeah. And our hope, of course, is you reverse that, start to turn all those in the other direction and get a vicious cycle in reverse, positive feedback loops, more oysters, creating more clear water, creating better situations for water quality, and that improves the plate of the oyster. So all around, it, it can be a positive thing. Exactly. And um, also to touch on the two oyster two parasites. Two parasites, MSX and Dermo, they're called. Right. Um, and both of those have seen their ups and downs over the past several decades in the Bay. Um, at some points, there have reached levels that are called an epizootic, sort Epi of- Epizootic. Epizootic, it's the animal version of an epidemic. Um, so at certain points, those diseases have reached very high levels and have caused a lot of mortality for oysters in the Bay. Um, one of them was thought to have perhaps always been in the Bay, that's uh, Dermo. Right. And then MSX, which is a shortened name for a very long name we don't need to get into. Multi, I'll just, I'm going to brag and pretend I know what I'm talking about. Multinucleate sphere unknown? There you go. Something like that? Very is that good, right? yes. <laughs> um, so that is thought to have been introduced um, through some sort of packing materials or something from um, the Indo-Pacific. So that... Both of those diseases, like I said, have seen their ups and downs. And the last sort of big outbreak was in uh, the late 80s, early 90s for those diseases. So right now, I mean, oysters in terms of the two parasites are doing pretty well. And that is at least partially responsible, along with a lot of restoration and other conservation practices for the native Chesapeake Bay oysters starting to do better, not anywhere near where we want it, but, but doing better. Right, and I just want to point out that um, in addition to 
um, just providing habitat, restoration and protection of oysters in restored areas provides a lot of those additional benefits um, that helps those other stresses that oysters are experiencing. So for example, um, particularly in Virginia, what we've started to see is oysters over time developing resistance to these two parasites. And the way that they are able to do that is by the reproduction of those adult oysters that have survived that. They have some sort of immunity within them that's built up to these diseases that they're able to pass on to further generations. And if we did not have um, protected areas in which these adult oysters could survive to reproduce, then we would lose that progress that's been made in developing disease resistance by taking those oysters out of the system. So, so, so that'll lead us to a topic we really want to explore, sanctuaries. But before we do that, you just said something that is a lot of people don't know. And that is that any oyster that is wild caught, that's grown in the wild, that you or I or anyone has eaten over the last couple of decades, several decades, is an oyster that's almost certainly resistant to the two parasites. Am I right? It would have died if it hadn't been resistant. To some degree. Yeah. To some degree. So what we've been doing is we've been taking those oysters that have the most potential, had the most potential to help uh, develop the resistancy out of the system and putting them into our stomachs. That was why the Chesapeake Bay Foundation in 1991, maybe 92, called for a moratorium on the catch of oysters in the bay, the same way striped bass, rockfish had had a moratorium in the mid-80s. We got our heads handed to us uh, by just about every sector of society, including editorial writers, and of course, after that, the oyster went from bad to much, much worse. Um, now, uh, fortunately, maybe it was, you know, there it, it got the catch levels got to such low benefits for commercial fishermen that the oyster was able to slowly start to rebuild, develop the resistancy, and now we're starting to see a little bit of improvement along with the strategies like sanctuaries proactive restoration. We have members and their volunteers all over the bay growing oysters at their docks, putting them onto sanctuary bars. So every little bit adds up. Here in Maryland right now, there's some controversy surrounding the sanctuary issue. Tell us a little bit about that and, and, and start with describing how much of the bay's bottom that grows oysters, it has oysters, is in sanctuary and what the benefits of those sanctuaries is. Sure, so Maryland is a little bit unique in this. And uh, in 2010, the state, after um, being advised by an Oyster Advisory Commission and going through a long look at the oyster management in the state, decided to establish oyster sanctuaries in Maryland. They originally had some small sanctuaries that covered approximately 9% of the bottom in Maryland. And just so everybody knows, sanctuaries where no harvest is allowed. That's right. right. Um, in 2010, decided to increase that sanctuary acreage to 24%, and that's where we are now. 
So Maryland currently has 24% of the productive oyster bottom in sanctuary, meaning not open to harvest, and 76% of Maryland's bottom is open to harvest. So that's the current state of the situation in Maryland. And it had to do with a long look at Maryland's oyster management in 2010, where a broad stakeholder group decided that uh, along with science-based management of the public fishery and expansion of aquaculture, that expansion of these sanctuary harvest or no harvest areas would be beneficial to the oyster population and the fishery overall. Because if you have uh, a certain number of acreage that is in sanctuary, the oysters are reproducing freely, developing as much resistance as possible. They're releasing the sperm and and um, and eggs into the water column. That the benefit of that might come might accrue to uh, oyster bars, oyster reefs outside the sanctuary. That's right. So the point of the sanctuary is to build up the reproductive capacity, that is the number and size of oysters, throughout the entire system. Because we know that the oysters that are outside of the sanctuaries will eventually be harvested. So the oysters within the sanctuaries are there for the purpose of increasing the overall capacity of the system to move larvae out of those sanctuaries onto the harvest bars, as well as provide all of the other ecosystem benefits of habitat, filtration, fostering disease resistance, and providing um, forage areas for fish and other animals. So if, if, if you like what oysters do for water quality, you like sanctuaries. If you like to harvest oysters from the wild areas, you should like sanctuaries as well. What's the controversy? Well, the controversy is when there's not enough oysters, everybody wants them. It's a supply and demand problem. And what we've come to find is that um, the oysters in Maryland are very, or the oyster fishery, excuse me, in Maryland is really heavily dependent on the spat set, meaning the number of oysters that are produced in any given year, uh, because they're very closely tied to the environmental conditions. If we had a larger oyster population, like there used to be several hundred years ago, you would get a little bit more resilience to those changes in environmental conditions. The oyster population would still be able to produce uh, well enough that they could sustain a certain level of fishery um, despite some fluctuating environmental conditions. But where we are now, the spat set is so uh, conditioned upon what the environment is doing that the fishery goes up and down with the environmental conditions. And what we've seen in the past few years is a great increase in the number of fishermen in the oyster fishery. It's almost doubled in the past three years. More oysters out there, more fishermen have come back to catch them. That's right. Um, the only problem is, as I mentioned, things go back down. Yeah. <laughs> what so, goes up comes down. That's right. So now we're seeing those good spat sets that we saw in 2010 and 2012. Those have all been harvested out. They've all reached their market size and have been harvested. And those have been followed by years of not so good spat set. And so now we have double the number of fishermen in the fishery and not as many oysters. Not as much production. Right. And uh, that makes it harder for each individual fisherman to make a living 
when there's more oysters, or sorry, more fishermen than there are oysters. Um, and that puts pressure on managers and others to make decisions about how the oyster fishery should be managed. And that's what's going on today. So there's there's been a push um, driven primarily by the commercial watermen to open up some of the sanctuaries for harvest. That's right. Um, and there's been a proposal that's been put out that sort of outlines that. But the bottom line is that the proposal includes opening up nearly a thousand acres of oyster sanctuary to harvest. A thousand acres of sanctuaries to harvest. That's right. And that would be about 11% of the current sanctuary acreage. And um, the Chesapeake Bay Foundation is supporting legislation to hold off on any decision regarding opening of sanctuaries or keeping them closed until until the completion of an oyster stock assessment. So there was a piece of legislation passed last year that requires the Department of Natural Resources in collaboration with the University of Maryland to carry out a stock assessment. Now, a stock assessment is basically a study that tells you how many oysters are in the ecosystem. And it seems crazy to think, but it's true, after all these years of managing the oyster fishery and doing restoration that we really have no idea how many oysters are out there in Chesapeake Bay. But that's the truth. So pretty, pretty standard procedure to say you need to develop a baseline before you can start to divvy up how much of the resource is going to be used for one purpose versus another. That's right. A stock assessment is the baseline for any fishery management plan and is really the bread and butter for how we manage most of the other species in Chesapeake Bay and beyond Chesapeake Bay. So the stock assessment is really what informs how you decide to manage that particular species. How long might this take? Was it, are we thinking a year or? It is uh, expected to be completed in 2018. It is something that is, does take a while to figure out what that stock assessment model looks like and come up with management options based on the information gleaned from that stock assessment. So as you mentioned, the legislation that CBF is supporting would prevent changes to um, the sanctuaries until we have that stock assessment in hand. And really all that is saying is that before we make any changes, that would reduce the amount of sanctuary acreage, let's really get a good idea of what's going on out there. Um, because beyond that, all the information that we have points to the fact that the sanctuaries are working and doing as they are expected to do, increasing the reproductive capacity, increasing the size and number of oysters, increasing the filtration in the system. So without that scientific basis for making those sorts of management decisions, um, it seems a bit premature to be making those calls on opening these sanctuaries to harvest. So for those of our listeners who live in Maryland, right now is an important time to let your legislators in both the House and the Senate know that oysters are something of interest to you. You want them to be given every chance in the world. There's legislation to support this stock assessment study and to avoid any temptation to allow more oysters to be harvested now before we really know the population status. 
That's right. The bill has been introduced in the House, and it has a hearing coming up next Friday. So now is a great time to make the, your voice heard on that. Great. And that that hearing is Friday the 17th or the 24th? 24th. 24th of February. Thank you very much, Allison. I'm not going to let you get away, though, without just talking briefly about Virginia. Virginia manages its oyster fishery a little differently. Tell us about that. So Virginia's oyster fishery is based on a system of rotational harvest. Basically what that means is there's certain areas and certain oyster reefs that each year are open to harvest while all of the others are closed. And um, that is a sort of traditional fisheries management technique to allow those areas to recover while you fish a different area. Allow those areas to receive a spat set, allow those oysters to grow to a marketable size, and allow that system to recover before you go back and harvest it again. Working as good as the sanctuaries in Maryland? Not as good? Different approach? Different system? How? It's entirely different than a sanctuary. So rotational harvest is a management technique that's applied to your fishery areas. A temporary sanctuary, if you will. Not even that. You're, you're shaking your head. Tell me what. They're totally different. Yeah. So even one, even less than one season's worth of harvest is going to impact the ability of those reefs to function the way a sanctuary reef does. Um, it's just the nature of how harvest impacts um, that habitat. Um, but what we can say is that we will receive some filtration benefits from that being there. Um, maybe some, you know, sediment uh, filtering benefits, but nothing on the scale of what could be developed on a sanctuary reef. Where there's really the rebuilding of the reef and really allowing the oyster ecology in that area to mature over right. years and decades as opposed to just a short amount. How long are the, uh, is the rotational, grow, uh, rotational harvest cycle in Virginia? Three or four years, or depending four years. on the area. Um, normally three years. Last thing for the consumer, for those of us who love oysters, there's another alternative. Aquaculture has come on gangbusters in the last, oh, decade or so, mostly in Virginia, but now starting in Maryland as well. A little information about that. Yeah, and I think it's important to note that uh, the oyster production in Virginia has been increasing steadily over the last decade or so. But the interesting thing to note about that is that 75% of that production is aquaculture. So like you mentioned, it's growing tremendously. It's also growing in Maryland, albeit at a slower rate. So aquaculture involves um, basically the farming of oysters. And aquaculturists will take either spat on shells, so oysters that are already set on a piece of oyster shell, or um, will set shell out on the bottom and allow that to receive a natural spat set. But that is on a bottom that is leased to them. So that's the one thing that's unique. The bottom is leased out to someone and they cultivate it just like you would cultivate a piece of land. And these are the same species of eastern oyster. That's right. The efforts to bring in a foreign oyster, Japanese, Chinese, other Asian type oysters was defeated and that's good news. 
because we don't run the risk of a foreign oyster outcompeting and introducing disease, et cetera, to the system. That's right. And these oysters that are being grown under culture are tasty year-round. Tell us why. That's right. So some of these oysters, um, in some places, a majority of these oysters are actually triploid. So what that means is that they have an extra set of chromosomes um, that doesn't uh, make anything different about them. They don't taste any different from a normal oyster, but all that means is that they're sterile. They don't reproduce, and because of that, they are the tasty, meaty oyster that you like to eat all year round because they are not reproducing in the summertime um, like the wild oysters are. So the wild oysters are putting all their exercise and energy into sex in the summer and that's depleting their uh that's making them a little less plump and uh tasty that's right (laughs) that's right so well that's that's great news for those of us who like to eat oysters year-round refrigeration uh, also has helped uh, bring the product to market in a safe way and that, that triploid process was developed uh, at Rutgers University, I believe, as part of the effort to test whether the Asian oyster was uh, resistant to MSX and Dermo, and they didn't want those Asian oysters reproducing. So before those tests started, they had to ensure that the oyster was in fact infertile, and that, that process was developed. Now we're benefiting from it. So more, you know, there's been a history of leasing oyster bottom in Virginia that goes back centuries. And Maryland has always been more uh, approaching the, the, the wild, no, uh, uh, no leased, less leased bottom. So I think that's part of the reason that aquaculture has caught on more in Virginia sooner because there were already uh, entrepreneurs with leased bottom but it's starting to come in Maryland and you're seeing some companies that are growing oysters here, either state creating jobs, putting more filter feeders in the water, creating better habitat and um, great for those of us who love oysters. That's right. It's a win-win. The future's bright if we can manage the successes we've had so far and continue them. That's right. We need to just stay the course and keep pushing on all the successes and build on the successes that we've had. Allison Colden, thank you very much. This is Will Baker. Our continuing podcast series, Turning the Tide, Saving the Chesapeake Bay. Thanks, Lauren. 